Hey guys, how you doing? Just a quick note. The problem with getting John B. Will for a podcast is you have to grab him where you can. And this was actually on a road trip. You're going to hear a little bit of background noise. Apologies. But the quality of banter and conversation will more than make up for that. Forgive the background noise. And that horrible droning that you might hear will be me as per usual, right? So sit back and listen to a real Antipodean legend. John Bernard Will is literally the man. Hi, this is Mick Tilly and you're listening to Mixed Martial Arts. Right, guys, on today's show, I've got two absolute stars with me. I've got, first of all, the really famous member of the family, that's Melissa Will. How are you doing, Melissa? Uh, how are you going? Yeah. And uh, the one and only, one of the original Dirty Dozen, the father of Australasian Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, am I right? Oh, is this a good enough build-up for you, John? Yeah, it's pretty good. I'm amazed. I'm, I'm you're, impressed. You're impressed? Yeah, the one and only, John Will. John, we're driving up the M6. I'm trying to picture, yeah, paint a scene here for the guys. Uh, everybody in the UK, it won't sound glamorous, but we're on the freeway. No, we're on the motorway, going up to my good friend Wayne Stokes. And I've managed to uh, win the jackpot and bring John up here, take, take him up here. So, we're going to talk about martial arts life, the universe, maybe mention Brexit, which we said we weren't going to do. But, uh, <laughs> I'd, like, I'd like your opinions on that. But John, first of all, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. And now, we'll start at the beginning. How did you get into martial arts? Oh my God, I've never heard that question before. You are original. Uh, I am original. Um, when I was 14, 14, I, well actually, you know, the normal stuff, bullied as a little kid, um, moved to a new town, new kid in town. My father was a policeman, so moving around a bit. Moved to a new town, got bullied, need to learn to defend myself. So my, my father started me, you know, um, on the mitts, you know, hitting mitts and stuff right. like that. And then um, just developed an interest, and later on, when I was 14, took up amateur wrestling, and then finally taekwondo, and then gojukai karate, and did all those kind of things that I guess most people into martial arts did back then. Uh, and then I, uh, when I, when I finished school, high school in Australia, like year 12, uh, I decided to follow in the footsteps of Don Drager, one my of my heroes. Yeah. And I decided to head over to Southeast Asia, which I kind of did for maybe, I don't know, the next eight or ten years. Um, Travelling through Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, India, China, Japan, training pretty much full time. And was this, this at this time, was it predominantly striking arts or were you already grappling? I was not grappling. There was some grappling involved in some of the silat. Silat is a, yeah. a Indonesian martial art. Well, it's a name that kind of as an umbrella term to describe all the native or indigenous indigenous martial arts of Indonesia and the Southeast Asian archipelago. Silat would be like saying karate, you know, yes. there's, but there's so many different kinds. Weaponry styles, kicking styles, and in that mix, there are some grappling styles of silat. So I did some of those, but nowhere on the level of, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or anything, but we did take the fight to the ground and continue there. So yeah, there's, yeah, I did some grappling. And of course in India, that that's that's what they're all about wrestling over there so uh, yeah I did some yeah well you, I know you, I know when this trip's over you're gonna pop 
You're going to pop over to Indiana. It's not just around the corner. My wife's sitting right in the back seat. Now, would I ever plan a trip to India where I had some plan <laughs> to no. call into an Indian wrestling pit? No, no. It's a romantic holiday, Mick. Oh, jeez. i tell you what, guys. But in it, was she sleeping? No. I, I, I'm out the door. Oh, right. Okay. So, it, you're not... No, 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 I would, no, I would no, never you do that. Dare. No, 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 of course I'm not. I'm not insane. Yeah, but my wife, I took, when we went to New York, my wife walked in and she complained that Henzo's gym was too warm. In It was the end of February. <laughs> so you're in New York, like any sort of oasis where it's going to be a little bit warmer than freezing is great. And Henzo being Henzo said, why, what's the problem? And she said, uh, it's too warm. And he went, I've brought a little piece of Rio to Manhattan. And my wife said, well, Rio is too hot for me then. And she, and she went, yeah, so my wife's not really interested in martial arts. But Melissa, you're a bit of a phenom when it comes to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You're back at it now, right? I used to be. You used to be, you know. It's been a while. Yeah, when you're riding, hey, come on. It's like riding a bike. Once you get back up, once you get back in, you're there. So, John. Some of the guys might not know this, but you famously won the world championships. Was it was that in '82 or '83? Oh my god, that's a past life. Yeah, yeah. The first world silat championships was in Jakarta. Oh, for those who are listening from the English audience, Jakarta, Jakarta. But we call it Jakarta because we've still can pronounce the T's Um, because we're part (laughs) of the Commonwealth. Um, So. Um, yeah, that was the uh, the first one was in Jakarta in 1982, and uh, I think there were 14 countries involved. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I I, I I competed in that one. Yeah, because I remember I remember read somewhere the the guy the, the year before when the guys had his neck broken in the final or in the somewhere coming up. But I, I, I don't know about that because that was the first world championship oh, no, so, ever. So what, what, I don't know was there, was someone injured in it then or oh, I, don't, I don't know. Oh, probably. So, this is the bit that I that I've heard you say this a few times, and I, I I love how you how you explain how you first discovered Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and if you don't mind saying about the magazine that you had first of all, which basically was <coughs> set up just to pay for you to travel, right? Yeah, I, I started. Um, there was an Australian martial arts magazine, Australian Fighting Arts, and uh, I wrote an article, put it in there, you know about my concept of cross-training, which which everyone gets the concept of cross-training now, but cross-training in 1977... That was heresy. Yeah. You, 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 get, you get killed for that. So so people shot me down, you know, and then, uh, you know, who, who were friends of the owner of that magazine, publicly in the magazine. Right. What do you know? You can't mix your martial arts... Which is ironic because those exact same people now are teaching mixed martial arts. Um, but you can't mix your martial arts. So I replied and they failed, They refused to publish my reply. Wow. Which was all polite, but it was just, you know. And um, they refused. And that made me, I was incensed by that. And my reaction, perhaps an overreaction, was just to run around. I asked how much to print 10,000 of those magazines. Ran out over a week got enough people and ads and sponsors to create my own magazine so I could write my reply front and centre and I vowed to destroy that magazine and it took me nine issues and I wiped them off the face I'm so glad you're my friend and then so that was my motivation not many people know but that was my motivation I just couldn't stand that 
and um, I put them out of business, which was awesome. <laughs> I'm not like that anymore. Um, and uh, then I lost interest in the magazine because of that. that was really? That was, that, that job, was your done. Drive, job done. Job yeah, done. Right. But I, in, when I had that magazine, it, it, it gave me pocket money. You know, you wouldn't... I mean, it'd be like a poor wage, right? It'd be like working in Tesco or something yes. like that. I don't know. But it gave me enough money to pay the bills and travel and an excuse to go to India and train and do articles, and, you know, stuff like that. So, and it only came out four times a year, seasonal. Right. So I had plenty of time and I did all that. And it was when I was writing that magazine, Marcelo Beiring came to Australia from Brazil and issued, you know, the famous Gracie Challenge. Uh, yes. $50,000. But $50,000 in 1984 or whatever it was, well, no one had $50,000. No. So, um, you know, so no one took up the challenge. But it, it intrigued me because it, back then that was unheard of. People didn't do that. They didn't throw out challenges, especially for money. So I started making some inquiries. Who are these guys from Brazil? And uh, that, that, that then led me to... Um, to LA where I heard there was a couple of guys uh, teaching in a garage in Torrance and I rocked up there and um, went and did my first five private lessons with Hori and Gracie yes I said what do I bring and he said bring a kimono so I bought him a Japanese kimono Right. <laughs> because we didn't call them kimonos back then. I thought, what the hell is he asking well, for a kimono? Was like an Austin Powers kimono with two dragons on the back? Exactly. Part of the like, seduction kit, right? I yeah. took him one. Every guy's got that. <laughs> really? And he went, what's this? I said, you wanted a kimono. I thought I'd buy you one. Where's oh, your no. kimono? Oh, you mean a gi. Oh, <laughs> right. So um, that's how I met him. And I did four lessons with Horian at like $100 a lesson, which was wow, more money than what I had at that time. So I had to borrow some money. And my fifth lesson was with his cousin, Hegan Machado, yeah, who was up from Brazil, yeah. who Horian got up there, were paying him five bucks an hour to teach class all day. And um, Hegan was the national champion in Brazil that time with an unbroken record of 364 fights without a loss. That's a serious markup business-wise, isn't it? Oh yeah, he knows yeah. what's going on. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, poor, right. poor Hegan was you know, eating at Sioux Plantation because it's all you can eat for four bucks. Right, wow. And uh, I met Higgin on the last day, and I liked that lesson the most, even though he had no English. Right. I came home to Australia, had no more money. I was training with Gene LaBelle, Benny the Jet, those kind of guys, Pete Cunningham. Yes. I'd run out of money, came home, saved up some more money, went back, and um, Higgin was still there. And Higgin said, don't train here, go to Brazil. I said, that's what I want to do. He said, I'm going Wednesday, come with me. So wow, and, and the rest literally is history. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. But the, I, I remember, I remember hearing. I, I can't remember what interview you did. It was with the Australian guy who did the CDs collections, and Al was on it. And I chats with the masters, and I'd heard. I can't remember what the guy's name is, but I remember, I remember hearing that, and I absolutely loved the idea. It was like the last day of the trip, and then I remember that you said that you'd gone back. and I don't know if you'd entered tournaments or you'd just been training, but you were like, after five days of training, imagine what it'd be like with another five days of training, and then, then it was going back. That's, that's true. Worked, I, right? I came home and I knew literally f f five lessons of BJJ. So you can imagine, right? Yeah. Guard pass, uh, escape from side control to the guard, cross the pelcho, guillotine, armbar, Americana, 
and it says a sweep and a back sweep. You know, wow. Some, something like that. Not much more than that. Uh, and I came back and I found a few, you know, Japanese jiu-jitsu guys and ja- uh, and judo black belts, actually. Right. I said, do you mind if we have a, you know, a bit of a role? And so, uh, and I, I tapped everyone with my five days worth of training. So I thought, well, that's something going on here because I've got no talent. You know, yeah. I mean, I was, I was athletic, but that, that's about all. Uh, so... Yeah, I, thought, the art. I thought I'll, yeah. I'll, do, I'll do 10 lessons <laughs> you know, wow. that'll be twice as good right? so, uh, so yeah and I've gone from there well you see just as you were saying this one thing that hit me was the fact that you didn't you you know that Hegan's English wasn't that great at the time right yeah. uh, it is awesome because he's probably one of the funniest guys I've ever met you know <laughs> like he's hilarious but you've always maintained that never listen to what the instructor tells you watch what he's doing because yeah. what he's saying doesn't always correlate yeah. and I've found that with the, with jiu-jitsu it's one of the only arts I've seen that really does transcend you know the spoken word because you can you can learn from nearly anybody because it's not just the tactile thing but it's the understanding and the, the problem solving and you know one of the things you've said before which I really do like is you say that uh, if you've had any sort of you know, input into the art, it was the way you've taught it, right? Which is one of the things you're famous for, right? So how did you, well, what brought you to the mindset that you just looked at the art and thought, you know, this can be formulated and more easily digested? I know that's a long preamble, but I wanted to cover. Yeah, well, I, you know, you gotta understand, Mick, I did a lot of my early training over in countries where I didn't speak the language, Thailand, India, China, Japan, you know, so I don't know whether I was getting good instruction. Now I doubt, I very much doubt what I consider to be good instruction. I doubt whether I was getting that at all, anytime, not technical instruction. Um, so my basic method of learning was to identify who the best guy was on the mat or in the gym or on the ring and ask myself the simple question, how's he doing that that's different than everyone else? You know, what's he doing? Look at it and analyze it. So I had 10 years of experience of you know, looking at someone and they're hacking, you use that term hacking? Yeah, hacking, you know, yeah. Hacking what, what it was he did. So I, I wasn't ever reliant on anyone telling me what they were doing. And it was only quite after a while when I started to train, you know, in the States and so forth with people who were explaining that I realized that the words that were coming out of their mouth weren't exactly matching what they were doing because, <laughs> because you know, if you take a golf swing or, you know, baking a cake or growing tomato plants you know that you you might have accumulated the all the little nuances and subtle things that you do over a lifetime but when someone asks you how do you grow your amazing tomatoes uncle mick and you say well you <laughs> dig the hole and you stick the plant in and you water it three times a week but that's not what you do over 30 years of growing the best tomatoes in coventry you know, you kick the chicken shit in there and you only do it on the full moon and you always do it in the right part of the yard with the sun. There's all these special little things that you do that go under the radar and even under your radar. Yeah. So knowing that, um, I like hacking stuff. I like to look at someone doing something like Eddie Cummings's inverted heel hook from Butterfly Guard. It's not obvious how you do it, but that's yesterday morning I hacked that for someone. Right. showed me that and I said well here's how we're going to do it here's what he's doing but here's a progression of my best guess of engineering how he evolved it 
yeah. you know, would have been from a scissor takedown and then a scissor takedown from butterfly guard coming out and then an elevation and then a scissor takedown. So, you know, I kind of like hacking stuff. And but it's, it's funny you say that because when we were down at, uh, obviously one of the great things about doing my podcast, I can I give out free adverts to all, all my friends. <laughs> and we were down at Tony Davis's Total Dojo in Milton Keynes, mm. and you said something which goes, which is the antithesis of martial arts especially in, in today's society where you said if there's 10 steps see if you can make it so it's 20 steps yeah because that means you've got two times more understanding of what's going on yeah and i was like wow in this age of over oversimplifying everything yeah. you're actually saying no don't but like the what? the dichotomy of that is the more understanding the simpler it gets well, yeah, I call it thin slicing, you know, so thin slicing, so you're understanding you shoot a double leg takedown, you know, you drop your level, step in, fold the knee, trailing leg comes up, rebuild your stance and change the angle, right, you know, so something like that. Yeah. So, but, but if, the, if, you, if, you, if you look at a, a double leg takedown as one move, that's a very shallow understanding. So the more elements you can identify in that, better your understanding is yes so you know if you can say there's 10 elements and not five basically you have a deeper understanding of it so i like to thin slice it down and make it like a high resolution you know the more pixels the clearer the image the less 1080 pixels. man yeah yeah so. you don't want to be monet i mean you know it's okay to have monet hanging on your wall but not in terms of clarity I, you know I don't want to yeah. be an impressionist yeah. <laughs> I mean it might be good to be an impressionist like first glance at something right yeah just to give people the overall shape and direction of the move but once I want if I really want to study detail I want detail right? and, and I'm, I'm big on that but in doing that as you say it the ironic thing is when you build enough steps anyone can replicate it and then it becomes like this there's a simplistic ele elegance to it, yes. which I like because I don't want to be all wordy and all, you know, I, I, I'm like that for an outcome that I want to get everyone in the room doing it, the yes. least talented, the most talented, everyone doing it. And then there's a sort of an elegance that's simple that comes through. You just said something that you, you, you gave two examples. First of all was you want people to understand broadly, but with depth. Uh, which like freaked me out and I thought that was just like amazing but secondly I was speaking to a friend of mine earlier and we were talking about you know training and the, the understanding the marriage of like the body and the mind and the spirit yada 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 but that takes more understanding than it does just you know if it's a means to an end which is another thing that I'd like to just mention before the internet really kicked off you know the whole Facebook thing one of the things I used to love reading were your blogs when you were on the road and you used to travel, uh, especially when you used to go down a little bit of a philosophical leaning. And one thing you've been saying for years is we need to raise the bar instead of lower it, right? Mm -hmm. And if I can get you to expand on that, because I love this. Well, I think if I had to boil it down, um, it comes back to an awareness of the deal that you've made. The deal anyone's made when they come on the mat and the deal I've made when I come on the mat is I've traded some of my life for that hour yeah. or two hours. And you, if you're training with me today, um, yeah. then you've you've traded your life twice. You know, are you, I don't know whether you're paying today, but <laughs> if you are, then you know the average person who's coming to train, they've traded some of their life to earn the money to the training and then they've traded more of their life to be on the mat. So they've traded more than what they think. and. 
if you've come to an awareness of how precious your life is, meaning that time's going by at a rate of one second per second, and you're never going to get it back, then you cannot afford to misspend it or be frivolous about that. So you have to extract the maximum value that you can from every second. So to me, that's what, and that, that, that underpins the concept of raising the bar. Why would I just go through the motions? Why would I accept good enough to get by or accept mediocrity if I'm trading my life for that very thing? If I'm trading my life for it, I want nothing but excellence. And I want nothing but the very best return on that one second per second. So, and I expect everyone on the mat to be on the same page. If they're not, it's just because they don't get the deal they've made. Yes. Yeah, well you see, this is this is the thing, right? And I'm not just saying it, I, 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 you, know, you know I've said this several times to you. You are literally one of the only people that I actually look up to and you inspire me because you're one of the only people I've met that actually does walk the walk. You know, I remember you, you said before that you've caught yourself a few times where you've phoned it in, yeah. in a class. Yeah. And then you've spent like, yeah, I, I get Melissa to back me up on this, it's been hell to live with for like two or three days because you felt like you've shortchanged not just the student, but yeah. yourself. Yeah. And you know, to have that understanding of yourself to go right no do you know what I can't I, I can't even accept that myself yeah. and that, that for me is what I, I got into martial arts yeah, obviously it's kick ass and chew gum and I'm all out of gum now but <laughs> uh, no I, actually, I got into it because I was bullied and then after a while I thought there's got to be more to this because I still feel scared yeah. I still hate the feeling of feeling like a shit yeah. uh, so there has to be more and one of the I'm, I'm going to get you just to explain you know, the series of books that you wrote which I personally think are the, easily the best self-help books or self-development books I've ever read because they're the ones that don't tell me to be a baby and cry. They just <laughs> say, get up and work, life sucks. Didn't you get the memo when you were a kid? So that was it. And then, you know, just to take those concepts and ideas and strategies to be excellent at jiu-jitsu or to be excellent at anything. And what, what drove you to write those books in the first place? Actually, a lot of people asked me, you know, why don't you write a book? Why don't you write a book? Uh, actually, I must say, Jeff Thompson. Um, really? Well, yeah. we were going to mention him in a minute, yeah. Yeah, right. So, Jeff Thompson of the UK, um, you know, he really made a contribution, his little contribution there to martial arts and yeah. uh, concept of defense and dealing with fear. And, you know, as we say, fence, question, smack. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and Jeff said, after, you know, going for a couple of walks with him and Coom Abbey and... Um, I, I walked in there and he came round and wanted to meet we wanted to meet, meet each other because we both heard about each other and yes. then went for a couple of walks and he said you should be writing all this down you know this is a book and I thought well I'll give it a crack went back there and I did it so um, thanks to Jeff for that and um, yeah I wrote my first book uh, and basically what I did was I just I just sat down and over a couple of months I figured out or identified what are the 60 most important things I've ever learned in my life. I identified right. 60. So that's three books of 20. And then I identified when when and under what circumstances and how did I learn those lessons. Right. And then I put those things in chronological order. 
Yeah, so that was it. So it started out kid and then all the way through to now, right? So, and, and of course it was all wrapped up in, a, in the martial arts landscape and the tapestry of martial arts because that's been my, you know, life. So, yeah. Um, yeah, some of it's not about the martial arts, but I must say that 90% of everything or my understanding is all so of life is also interwoven with martial arts training and exploration and you know all of that that yeah it, it comes across as like a martial arts story but you see this is the thing so you know yeah i think myself and al peasland i have to get al in here because he's uh he's in barcelona at the moment producing a movie oh. can you believe that that's red bull's got him in there i don't know how but um we, we've known you for like i would have thought 11 years now 10 11 years <coughs> and the more i more I've learned about you, the more I've realised that the same mindset that you have for jiu-jitsu, you've taken to everything. It's like, mm. I know that, you remember I've told you the 11th commandment. I don't know if you know this, Melissa. Do you know what the 11th commandment is? No. Thou shalt not covet thy BJJ instructor's house, right? <laughs> right? Because famously, you've got one of the greatest houses. How many awards has that house won? What, the, the, two. The, two, right? But these are... Yeah, but not my department. Hey, it's, no, I I know Melissa's I know Melissa's uh, been able to put that to the forefront. But as I said before, my friend and my friend Wayne Stokes and I always say, you know, you're like you're like Tony Stark in a gi because it's like a Tony Stark style house, and it's unbelievably cool. But I remember you telling me that you got into building and used the same principles that you used in jujitsu and the understanding and going to the the best guy that you could get. To have that business, you know, how you know, how do you go from doing jujitsu to being a builder? I know how. Yeah, I know from being a builder to going to jujitsu. So that's what I've done. Yeah, well, you know, it's just about immersion. If we want to do Omar Plata today, and you want to get that done this weekend, you know, I'm going to look at it, build up the story from the beginning. Where would it start? How would Omar Plata be? What would have been the first Omar Plata? How would that come about? Get everyone on board with that, then take everyone through the evolutionary process that probably the development of Omoplata took, you know, all the way through and then immerse ourselves neck deep in it. So, you know, the same thing with housing. I, I just drank a lot of cups of coffee and over one week read books on architecture and design and Googled the 50 best houses ever built on the planet and looked at the form and the function of those houses and then designed it. Learned, learned Google SketchUp. Yeah. Um, um, put myself in there for 15 hours, did a whole bunch of tutorials, free, anyone can do it, any idiot can do it, with enough coffee and an internet connection. <laughs> and then you just start sketching and doing it and then working it all out and then give it to an, an architect and say, draw that exactly, don't change it, mate. And yet again, it's that, it goes back to that understanding broadly, but being a specialist in the bits that you need to be. Well, you know, what I did with that is like get the big picture. Does it look like, so I, I designed my house backwards. So, so I said, what do I want from the outside? What's the shape I want to look at? What, what, yeah. what, do, I look, what do I want to look at from the outside? Um, you know, and, and I got that and then I figured out how to work, make the inside work. Right. right, and and then later on, each room, I, I I just did a design for each room, and then all the detailing for each room. Um, now my wife's going to jump in and say I. she picked yes. the colours. Colours. I like the eye. Colours. <laughs> Not colours. I was the internal floor plan designer. I think. Oh my god. <laughs> right, and it kicks off in mixed car, Pally's yeah. car. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
What, what, so what, what else did you do then, Melissa, to this? I've just got to say, in designing that house, you've just got to know what you want. And a lot of people don't know what they want and what they need and how, how it flows. We live in our house. We, we, we're in there all day. We work from home. So I think we, we know what we need and how the floor plan should flow. And that was really important for me, the internal floor plan design. And so again, it's the whole understanding the functionality, the role that this thing plays, and then taking it to the best of its ability. And then you know, if you can enjoy it as well, yeah, I've, I'm a great believer in you know Carl Steiner's work, which is he was a he, yeah he was an architect who said if you create an environment where the soul just lifts, you will literally lead a great life. And I was like, really? And I thought it was a heavy concept. Until I started seeing the success that this guy had, yeah. and then that was it. It was just, you know, unbelievable. Well, we, we wanted to be connected to our backyard. You know, our backyard, like, is in, in Australia, it's quite large, right? So we, that's a landscape, really long. Yes. I don't know how long. How long is it, baby? It must be twenty five meters, thirty meters. I don't know. And it, but it's glass from one side to the other. That's our living room, and our library's in there, and our living room, and it looks out, and. You know, giant glass doors open out into the garden, which is all tropical kind of garden. So we wanted that connection to the outside, you know, so that inside-outside space is kind of blurred. Yeah. Um, you know, and detailing like the mat. I've got a private mat there, so we sunk that into the concrete, so it's level with the tile. Well, that was that was Lots the detail of I like. Liked. Yeah. Yeah, it's just detail one room at a time. You know, like detail one technique at a time. Just because you know the detail on that technique doesn't mean you know the detail on that technique. So every room, you know, you have to think about it. It wasn't, wasn't that hard. I think over architects being overpaid. I mean, seriously, <laughs> it was not no, that hard to do. You just had to draw it. Yeah, well, you know, that you just said something. Uh, it's like just because you were a very good kitchen fitter doesn't mean you. I want you swinging the front door. <laughs> yeah, because it's, you know, unless, <laughs> unless I'm going to put, put a toaster in the letterbox, you know, we could be a bit screwed here, you know what I mean? But... Uh, we are going to have to wrap up in a minute because the sat-nav girl's telling us we're nearly at Wayne Stokes's, right? Okay. But we will try and catch up again on this. But John, Melissa, thank you very much. We're now going to try and find our way through the black country. And that's actually what they call it around here. So The black country. The black country, yeah. I think it's because of the industrialisation. That's what I'm hoping anyway. Oh, it'll kick off now that you're out of the EU. <laughs> Do you know what? For another time. <laughs> Thanks a lot, John. Thank you, mate. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. You can listen to more shows like this on MixedMartialArts.com. Mixed Martial Arts is an abrupt audio production. Today's show was produced by Luke Berry. To find out more about podcasting or get help with your own podcasts, head over to abruptaudio.com forward slash start.